Amen. Well, let me encourage you to turn back in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4, page 1180, the uh, reading that Paul has just read for us. Um, If you haven't been here for some weeks, uh, you may not know uh, that we've been going through the book of Philippians. I think it's been a great uh, few studies for us, and uh, next week we finish off the book. But uh, today, Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 to 9. And if you like these things, you'll find a sermon outline on the back of the service order. Um, uh, So if you want to see where I'm going in the next 25 minutes or so, Um, There it is. It it won't surprise you to hear that one of the best holidays I've ever had was in Hawaii, uh, on the island of Maui. And the best experience of that holiday was to do some snorkelling. I don't know whether you've ever done some. Uh, I'd never done any before. It is fantastic. Uh, The day started with a boat taking us about an hour's trip out to a reef where the boat lowered its anchor and off we went. Uh, I'm not a very strong swimmer, uh, and I was a little apprehensive at first, but after a while I was in my element. I'd never done it before, but I loved it. I found myself totally engrossed in the amazing sights of the fish and the coral. So engrossed that after a little while of snow snorkelling, I lift my, lifted my head up to see that the boat had gone. <laughs> after a moment of total panic, I, I looked around and saw that the boat had moved some distance away, off to one side. And then I realised the boat actually hadn't moved at all. The anchor was still down. It was me that had moved. As I was snorkelling, floating on the surface of the sea, I drifted gradually with the current. But it had been so gradual, I hadn't even noticed. I thought I was just virtually still. And that is a huge danger in the Christian life. Spiritual drift. Drifting away from Jesus Christ. It's dangerous because drift happens so gradually we barely notice it. I can think of uh, several uh, people who were sold out for Jesus in their university years, but now, years later, they seem to have so many other things that take priority in their lives. They've not consciously given up the Christian life. It's just that over the years their priorities have changed and when they finally look up to see where they are, they're a long, long way from Jesus. They've drifted on the current of the world's priorities. Now this passage in Philippians chapter 4 is about avoiding spiritual drift. Look at verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown... That is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. See, this is about standing firm. It's about putting the anchor down so that we won't drift from the Lord. It's not immediately clear in the uh, New International Version, but uh, this verse is something of a a marker pointing both uh, back and forward in this passage. Uh, The backward marker is obvious. It's the word, therefore, therefore. He writes in verse 1, in view of the things written in chapter 3. The forward marker is the word thus, and if you look down in the NIV, you won't find the word thus. But in a more literal translation, the end of verse 1 reads this, stand firm thus in the Lord. And that word thus regularly points forward to what is about to come. Therefore pointing back, thus pointing forwards. In other words, Paul is about to show us how to stand firm in the Lord. He's told us how to stand firm last week. Now he's going to give us some more markers on standing firm, putting the anchor down, making sure we don't drift from the Lord. 
That's what chapter 4 is about then, standing firm, avoiding spiritual drift. And the key phrase, the phrase that holds this whole section together is this little phrase, in the Lord. It's repeated throughout the section. It's there in verse 1. See, stand firm in the Lord. And then you'll see it again throughout this section. Verse 2, agree in the Lord. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord. End of verse 7, guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, in the Lord. And verse 10, I rejoice greatly in the Lord. This phrase then, in the Lord, holds this whole section together. And more importantly, it holds us together as Christians. Standing firm in the Lord will save us from this spiritual drift. That's the way this passage works, I think. Now, there are five things Paul tells us to do to stand firm in the Lord. Now, they're on the sheet. The first one, agree in the Lord, verses 2 and 3. Verse 2. I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, Lord Yoke Fellow, help these women who've contended at my side in the cause of the gospel. Here are, are two women who, it seems, just can't get along with each other. And we met them a few weeks ago. Euodia and Syntyche, they were at each other's throats. So I said a few weeks ago that they were so much at each other's throats that some people like to refer to them as odious and so touchy. They couldn't get on with each other. And what is so alarming is that they were not people on the fringes of church life. Here are women who, do you see it in verse 3, have helped Paul in the cause of the gospel. These women had been on missions with Paul, organised evangelistic events with Paul, taught the How to Win Your Friends for Christ course with Paul. But they can't get along with each other. And so Paul pleads with them to sort out their differences. I plead with you. Because, you see, disagreeing with other Christians affects our spiritual lives. See, look at verse 3 closely. These women have, in the past, contended at Paul's side in the cause of the gospel, but not now, because they're taken up with this spat, this argument. Disagreements with other Christians distract us from our gospel priority. I've seen it in individuals, I've seen it in whole churches. Disagreements deflect me from gospel work. And once I stop focusing on the priority of the gospel, I begin to drift. So important is this that in verse 3, Paul asks the one who is to receive this letter, this uh, Mr. Yoke fellow, uh, he asks him to intervene in this matter. You see, yes, I ask you, Lord Yoke Fellow, help these women who contended at my side in the cause of the gospel. Help them to sort out their differences. Help them to get focused again on the gospel. You see, sometimes it takes a third party to help us sort out our differences. But we must sort them out because conflict never just goes away. I learned many years ago that unresolved conflict remains unresolved. You can't just close your eyes and hope it's going to go away. It won't. Unresolved conflict remains unresolved. And if we don't deal with it, it will deal with us. And it will result in spiritual drift. So, verse 2, I plead with Euodia, I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. I wonder if there's someone here. I wonder if there's a number of people here who can't get on with somebody else. Sort it out. And maybe there's some here who can be the loyal yoke fellow of Christ Church forward, helping others to sort out 
their differences. Before we move on, please note that phrase that, uh, phrase that we're told to agree, again, in the Lord. This is not, and this is important, this is not an appeal for unity at the expense of truth. So many times in churches, in the wider church, we're asked to kind of put aside our belief and just kind of agree. No, no, that's not what this is saying at all. This is agree in the Lord. That the plea to agree in the Lord means thinking God's thoughts, having his priorities, not giving up on gospel truth, just saying, well, we've all got to agree together. No, 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 no. But it is having the word of God at the heart and working out our differences, not putting aside the, the central things. Working out what is non-negotiable, sticking to those things. So first thing then, to avoid spiritual drift, uh, agree in the Lord. Secondly, uh, rejoice always in the Lord. See there in verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again in case you miss it, rejoice. Philippians is a letter of joy. We can't have missed that over these last week. There's joy and rejoicing right throughout the verses, every verse uh, in this letter. But what is striking about this verse is that it's a command a command to always rejoice. Whatever situation you find yourself in, rejoice. That's, of course, the challenge of this verse. It's easy to rejoice when everything's hunky-dory. What is hard to do is to rejoice when I don't feel like it. Rejoice when we feel that life has dealt us a difficult hand. Rejoice always, always. See, it seems that, that many Christians are like little boats moored in tidal waters. When the tide's in, they're riding high, bobbing around, life's good. When the tide's out there, they're lying on their side, looking sick and depressed. Emotions up and down, depending on their circumstances. Don't be like that. Rejoice always, says Paul. And of course, Paul is a great example of this. On his first trip to Philippi, Paul was thrown in jail. What was he doing? In jail, in in Acts chapter 16, verse 25, he and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, rejoicing in the Lord. Now, here we are, years later, Paul is under house arrest in Rome, and right through the letter we see him rejoicing. He's always rejoicing. Now, please don't misunderstand this. To rejoice always does not mean that we are always happy about our circumstances. Paul wasn't happy about being in jail. He longed to be out of captivity so that he could get on with gospel ministry. This is not telling us to be happy about our circumstances, but we can rejoice whatever our circumstances when we are in the Lord. I think of my dad's death. I hardly need to say I'm not happy that he's dead. I miss him terribly. I'm not happy that my mum is lonely and worried about the future, but I can rejoice. I can rejoice that dad was a Christian. I can rejoice that he's now with the Lord, that I will see him again. I can rejoice in the gospel of Jesus Christ that makes all the difference in the world in the face of death. I can rejoice in the way the Lord has upheld us and sustained us in these last days. I can rejoice that so many people have shown us so much kindness. I can rejoice in the prayers of so many that the Lord has answered to uphold us. I can rejoice that we had a wonderful week with mum and dad just before he died. I can rejoice that dad went quickly and without suffering. I could tell you so many other things that left me rejoicing in the Lord through this personal sadness. No, I'm not happy about his death, but I can rejoice in the Lord. So verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always, I'll say it again. 
Rejoice. Now, have you got the point? In the Lord, in Christ, there's always a reason to rejoice. So if you want to stand firm, if you don't want to drift, then think about it always. What does it mean to be in Christ? Will you do that every day? What does it mean that I'm in Christ? Have you ever made a list? It means we're forgiven. It means we have eternity ahead of us. It means we've been given the Holy Spirit. It means we're part of a family of believers. It means we know the almighty creator of the whole universe as our Father who cares for us deeply. I've hardly scratched the surface of what it means to be in Christ. But you see the point. Whatever your circumstances, in Christ, in the Lord, there's always reason to rejoice. Uh, Years back, a, a wise pastor told me how to help people who are in the spiritual doldrums. He said to me, tell them to go and write a list of of the situation they'd find themselves if they were not Christian. See, if you were not a Christian, have you ever thought about that? Well, I have thought about it from time to time. I became a Christian back in 1983, 27 years ago. Uh, If I were not a Christian, how would my life have panned out? What would be my situation now? I'll tell you a few things. Unforgiven. Bound for hell, without God and without hope in the world. That's where I'd be. See, make a list of what you would be if you were not in Christ. You'll soon find yourself rejoicing. I've tried it, it works. Indeed, let me encourage you to start every day with a list of reasons to rejoice. Every day. See, that first hour in the day sets the rudder for the, for the rest of the day. If you start off rejoicing in Christ, you will find that that is the the direction that you've you've set your your, your day on. Rejoice, because rejoicing in the Lord is the cure for despondency. Rejoicing in Christ will cure us from a a crushed and complaining and bitter spirit. And so do you see, rejoicing stops spiritual drift. Agree in the Lord. Secondly, rejoice always in the Lord. Third, to stop spiritual drift, point to the Lord, verse 5. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. This word, gentleness, is an interesting word. It does not mean having the constitution of a wet dish rag. It does not mean having no backbone. Paul is not telling us to be spiritual wimps. Indeed, to get hold of this verse, we need to know that this word gentleness could be translated self-effacingness. So there's a kind of irony here. Uh, Verse 5 is saying, be known for being self-effacing. Be known for being someone who doesn't want to draw attention to themselves. Be known for that. Be known for somebody who's all the time saying, don't look at me. Uh, See, what do we normally want to be known for? Um, Good looks? Some of us don't have a hope with that, do we? Uh, Quick wit, intelligence, being top of our profession, is that what we want to be known for? Or something more spiritual, perhaps, uh, for your prayer life, for being a great Bible study leader, or a fantastic evangelist. Look, wanting to be known for being any of those things will actually lead us away from the Lord because they're all about bringing glory to self. Look at me, I'm a great... But if we work at being known for being self-effacing, this gentleness word, we will be killing egotism and exhibitionism and self-promotion and pride. 
course, it's what the whole of chapter 2 was about. Jesus Christ became a nobody, even though he is somebody. He became a nobody. He is known for selflessness. And we should too. And the reason for the command, verse 5, let your gentleness be evident to all, the Lord is near. The Lord is near. It, It could mean two things, this phrase, the Lord is near. It could mean that God is constantly near, spatially, always around us, living in us by his spirit, the Lord is near. Or it could mean that Jesus is coming back soon. It's near to the time when he's going to reveal himself. It doesn't really matter which it is. Either way, it's the knowledge of the Lord's presence that is the motivation for being self-effacing. See, just think about it for a moment. If you know Jesus is close to you, is about to return, you won't be pointing to yourself all the time. What will you do or say or think when Jesus returns? If he were to come into the room right now and stand here, what would you and I do? Would I be standing here proud that I was in the middle of preaching a sermon? Good time to return, Lord. Would you be pleased that you'd come to church rather than watch Wimbledon or whatever else is on tonight? Would you be running up to Jesus and saying, wasn't I a good witness for you yesterday, Lord? Or didn't I have a great quiet time with you this morning, Lord? Of course not. You and I wouldn't be doing any of those things. We wouldn't be thinking any of those things. When we see the Lord face to face, we will not dream of talking about ourselves or exalting ourselves. It will all be about him. We'll be overwhelmed by his glory, astonished by his greatness. As an aside, I've just been thinking about that while we were singing. My dad is doing that right now, looking at Jesus, not thinking about himself. He's going, (gasps) that's what we'll do. The focus will be off self and onto him. Well, says Paul, the Lord is near, verse 5, so that's how we should be now. Be gentle, be self-effacing, indeed be known for it. Don't be about self, don't be proud, be gentle, be... Pointing away from yourself. Now do you see how that stops spiritual drift? Because you take the focus off yourself and onto him. And while your focus is on him, you won't drift from him. Avoid spiritual drift. Uh, Agree in the Lord. Rejoice always in the Lord. Point point to the Lord. And fourthly, pray to the Lord. Verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Now please don't misread this. This is not telling us not to worry, but it's telling us what we should do when we start to worry. See, if you look back to chapter 2, verse 28, on the same page, but just over a bit, you'll see that Paul got anxious, chapter 2, verse 28. He was anxious about Epaphroditus. Now the point here is then, as we look at chapter 4, verse 6, the point here is, is what we should do when we do feel anxious. Paul is not saying don't get anxious. Everybody does that. What do you do when you do? Well, these verses say the way to be anxious about nothing is to pray about everything. Anxiety and prayer are as opposed to each other as fire and water. Don Carson uh, says this, he says, I've yet to meet a perennial worrying uptight person who has a good prayer life. He goes on to say there may well be people like that but I've just never met one. I've yet to meet a perennial worrying uptight person who has a good prayer life. See, when was the last time you prayed explicitly and at length about things that concern you and 
things that plague you, things that trouble you. Not just a quick prayer, Lord help me, really praying. I think one of the things that has most saddened me over the past four years or so is is talking to people about their pattern of prayer. Rather naively, I've always assumed that Christians spend time in prayer. But what I've discovered in these recent years is that many Christians don't. They just don't. As I've talked to Christian students, I've discovered that they have no significant pattern in their prayer life at all. It's all very random, if at all. As I've spoken to people who've been Christians for years, I've discovered there's no real depth to their prayer life. It's really they're praying like someone who's only been a Christian a short wee while. And whoever I've spoken to, on the whole, Christians have very real length to their prayer life. I know length is not everything, but you know, five or ten minutes in the morning, not much, is it? Really? See, I think over the past 20 years I've been quite naive in thinking that Christians are praying people. And that's probably why Christians are just as anxious as unbelievers. Listen again to the words of Don Carson. I've yet to meet a perennial, worrying, uptight person who has a good prayer life. If we're to deal with anxiety, we do need to develop our prayer lives. Uh, A couple of years ago, we launched this thing called the Essential Christian Library and uh, back in 2008 we were encouraging you to read one of these two books. Uh, The Essential Christian Library, in case you've missed it, is a series of books that we're sort of rolling out over the years to say, read these books, you'll get all the key things about the Christian life in place. So a couple of years ago we thought about prayer and uh, here are two books to pray. They're still on the Essential Christian Library book uh, 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 shelf uh, over there. Don't just pray, don't just stand there, pray something by Ronald Dunn. Read that years ago. It's a really helpful book. Easy to read. How's your prayer life going? Will you get a copy? Will you read it? Want something a bit more challenging? But it's worth the work. Don Carson, A Call to Spiritual Reformation. Read the, reading this book, it was the only book that I've read that at the end of every chapter I was driven to my knees. That might have just been where I was at at the time. It might not happen for you, but it's a brilliant book. Maybe you don't like reading, although I think it would be good if you got into it, but uh, listen to the CDs from the sermon series on prayer two years ago, May 2008, as we went through the Lord's Prayer and tried to learn how to pray. See, verse 6 asks us, do you worry about stuff? Well, are you praying about stuff? Paul says here, don't worry, pray rather than worry. And crucially, we're to pray with thanksgiving. Do you see it there in verse 6? It's not so different from rejoicing in the Lord because thanksgiving puts things in perspective. Praying about everything and with thanksgiving will help you to stand firm because when people do drift in the Christian life, it's usually their prayer life that goes first. Have you noticed that? They stop praying long before they stop declaring Christ. And there's another reason why it'll stop us from drifting. Look at verse 7. Praying with thanksgiving results in knowing the peace of God. See, when you've done the praying in verse 6, verse 7, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. You see how that'll stop you drifting. You won't drift away from the Lord if you know God's peace in your life. Well, that's the most wonderful thing. Why do I want to drift from him when I know that? 
Of course, don't misunderstand this promise. This is not a promise for everything to be well all the time. You know, pray about it and you'll never have any problems. That's not it. It's just be stupid to think that way. This is a promise that you'll know peace in the midst of troubles. Well, again, if I may, I'll be autobiographical. I've known it in these last days, as has my mum. She said to me a couple of times since Dad died how surprised she is that she's calm and at peace. When we started talking about it, we're convinced it's because so many people have been praying for us. We know, we've known the peace of God guarding our hearts and minds. It's an amazing thing. Peace in the midst of trouble. It's a wonderful thing. It can't be explained, verse 7. It transcends all understanding. But we do know where it comes from, end of verse 7. It's in Christ Jesus. Peace in Christ. This is not just a, a, a troubled shared, is a is a troubled halved. Do you know that old phrase? It's not that. My brother always used to turn that around and say, a, pro- a trouble shared is a trouble doubled. You know, no, you've got the trouble as well. Well, it's not that. No, 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 no. It's peace in Christ. It's about being in Christ that gives you the peace. It's not just that you're sharing it with someone. Anybody can do that. It's a peace that comes from knowing him. And here's the big point, I think, from verse 7. If I'm in Christ, then I know that ultimately nothing can hurt me. You see, I can be worrying about all sorts of things, but if I'm in Christ, what can hurt me? We saw it at the end of chapter 1. Paul wrote, to live is Christ and to die is gain. When I'm in Christ, even if I die, I've got gain. When Jesus is everything, when I'm in Christ, nothing can take that, him, away from me. Even death, the worst thing that can happen to me, even death brings me to Christ, the one who I'm living for. Do you see? Peace in Christ. Ultimately, everything's okay in Christ. That brings me peace. Praying rather than worrying brings me peace, guards my heart, and inevitably keeps me from spiritual drift. Agree in the Lord, rejoice always in the Lord, point to the Lord, pray to the Lord, and finally, think on the Lord. Verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Now you'll see the quote that I'm about to quote on the sheet there. One wag wrote, You are not what you think you are, but what you think you are. See, what we think about shapes what we become. Dwell on adulterous thoughts and if you get the chance you're likely to act on them. I I was thinking uh, this week of a a guy I knew many, many, many years ago uh, who watched, a Christian man, who watched unhelpful videos. And uh, although he was a married man, he watched unhelpful videos and... uh, and it caused all sorts of trouble in his marriage because, well, you can imagine. If you think only of your career and on your advancement, when it comes to the crunch, you'll pursue your career above everything else. That's what you're thinking about all the time. If you're wrapped up with yourself, you'll act selfishly. If you're only thinking about yourself, what, what we are, what we think. So you see, it's vital. We think wholesome thoughts. That's verse 8. Whatever is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, praiseworthy, think about such things. And what is true and noble and right and pure and lovely and admirable and excellent? Well, many things are those. 
But note the last big word there in verse 8. Whatever is praiseworthy. What is worthy of the Christian's praise? Well, again, a number of things, but ultimately only one thing, one person. Only one person is worthy of our praise, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul is doing more than just say, think on nice things. He's telling us to think on the Lord. For the Lord is true and noble and right and pure and lovely and admirable and excellent and praiseworthy. So again, you see, here's an exercise for you. Consider how much time you spend watching and reading and thinking about unhelpful things compared with how much time you spend thinking on Christ. Consider how much leisure time you spend watching TV and reading magazines and novels and listening to music. Compare that to the time you give to reading the Bible and and good Christian books and listening to Christian music and Christian teaching online. And know this, if we are putting rubbish into our minds, then rubbish will come out. You are not what you think you are, but what you think you are. There's no shortcut to thinking wholesome thoughts. And that's, all of this is not to say that we have to lock ourselves away from everything in the world. It's not to say we should never watch the telly or anything. But oh, we must be involved in the world to make a difference. But let's face it, we can look at dirt and see it as dirt or we can look at dirt and wallow in it. Think on the Lord and that will help you to stand firm. It will stop drift. It will keep you solid and secure and rooted in Christ. If you're thinking often of Christ, you won't go far from him. And look at the promise, as we think godly thoughts and then live out a godly life, end of verse 9, the God of peace will be with you. And when he's with you, you're sure to stand firm in the Lord and avoid spiritual drift. It's a wonderful little passage, isn't it? Agree in the Lord. Rejoice always in the Lord. Point to the Lord. Pray to the Lord. Think on the Lord. See, spiritual drift is so dangerous because it happens without us even noticing. Over time, over the years, suddenly we look up and we're miles away from him. And so Paul says, practice these spiritual disciplines and you will stand firm in the Lord. Let's pray together. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for the way this wonderful book holds together, beginning by telling us that you who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus, giving us that great confidence that ultimately it's you that holds on to us and keeps us going as Christians, and yet at the end reminding us that we have a role to play, that we should stand firm in the Lord. We pray this evening for any here who drifted away, maybe just recently, maybe over many years. May these things have helpfully arrested them and please help them to move back towards you quickly and decisively. For those of us who are still going on with you, we ask you to help us to be disciplined in these things that we may not drift away.
over the years ahead. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that as we live this kind of life, not only would we stand firm, but others would be pointed to you as you become increasingly everything to us. May we be able to say with Christ, uh, with Paul, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And we ask it through Christ our Lord. Amen.